If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of John. The book of John, chapter 18. This morning, we're going to look at two events surrounding the cross. There are many events that lead up to it, many events that we need to look at, but today we're actually going to cover two of those events, two events that occurred by two of Jesus's disciples, two of his followers. So this morning, we're going to look at how Jesus was betrayed by Judas and denied by Peter. Two events that bring a little heartache to the Christian when, they, when we read about them. So there's a warning, though, in these events for us today. There is a warning in the events, a warning against the temptations that lead to betrayal and denial. But more than anything, what I hope we see this morning, more than anything, is that there is hope in this passage There is love in this passage because unlike the disciples in the midst of the betrayal, in the midst of his loneliest moment, in the midst of a denial, Jesus does not betray us. He does not deny us. And that is good news for us this morning. So as I said, John chapter 18, if you're taking notes or want to follow along, uh, there is an insert in the bulletin. We have two main events, the the, uh, betrayal and the denial. But in the midst of this, we do have glorious truths about Jesus that we need to see. So John chapter 18, starting in verse 1. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you, I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Would you pray with me real quick? Father, I pray more than anything this morning that your son, Jesus Christ, would be glorified in the midst of this text, in the midst of this betrayal and denial. May we see the beauty and the glory of Jesus. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Few things in the history of Christianity bring about the emotions of anger and sadness and shock like the betrayal of Judas. How could someone who professed to love Jesus like him, who followed him, was a disciple of his, allow himself to love money and to love prestige more than he loves Jesus? How could he allow himself to be overcome by Satan? So let's set the scene. We are in the garden. We find ourselves in the garden. If you remember what happened in John chapter 13, Jesus predicted in their upper room meal, predicted that one of them would betray him. He knows who it is all along. 
So Judas left in John chapter 13. And in the midst of it, in the meantime, in John chapter 14 through 17, we have this upper room discourse as Jesus is telling them what to expect when he leaves. He is going to leave. He's going to leave them. He's going to the cross. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. And they're going to see that he will rise again. And from there, he will go and ascend to heaven. So he's going to leave them. But in the midst of that, as we looked at last week, he doesn't want them to be dismayed. He doesn't want them to lose faith. So here in chapter 18, we're moving towards the cross at a quick pace now. Christ and his disciples have left the upper room. They travel across a valley, and they find themselves in the Garden of Gethsemane, an area, a garden, that was most likely walled in. It had a walled enclosure in it. It was a private place that John tells us that Jesus and his disciples often went to. And it's here, in this private place, that Judas knew about, that he comes with Roman soldiers, with chief priests, with, the scri- with some of the scribes, I'm sure, and the Pharisees, to betray Jesus because he knew the place. Again, Jesus had often met with them there. He was betrayed in a garden. It reminds us of another betrayal, does it not? The first betrayal, we should say. One that also took place in a garden, the greatest of betrayals, where God often met with his children, walking alongside of them in the cool of the day. The greatest of betrayals. And Adam and Eve rebel against him. They rebel against their king. They betray God, their very own father. And here with Judas, we have a picture of something so similar something so similar in this betrayal. He had obeyed Jesus' command to follow him. He had left everything. He had acknowledged Jesus to be the Christ. He had even had his feet washed by Jesus as a sign of love and service. And then he rebels against him, rebels against his king, the only savior of the world. What had happened? I think Judas had become disillusioned Jesus wasn't turning out to who he thought he would be, so he betrays him, betrays him for money. Such a heinous act of disloyalty that we can judge so easily this side of the cross, but the question has to be asked, what separates us from Judas? What separates you and I from Judas? He had left everything to follow Jesus. He had been discipled by him. He had traveled with him. He had listened to his teachings day in, day out, week after week, year after year. He had been there for others. He had probably prayed with others, taught in Jesus' name, even loved others. But all the while, he misunderstood what type of king Jesus was. Misunderstood what his kingdom entails. That sacrifice and love and service are the hallmark traits of a disciple. He didn't understand. The traits of a disciple are not notoriety, prestige, fame, the sacrifice and love. So Judas becomes disillusioned. His desires and his expectations were not being met. So we have to ask, what desires and what expectations have we placed on Jesus? What have each of us as Christians possibly placed on Jesus? So let's think of our desires. What do you truly long for in this world? What do you long for more than anything else? What do you fantasize about in your quiet moments? 
What is the deepest desire of your heart? What is the greatest dream for yourself or for your family? Is it happiness? The perfect family that always gets along? Children which are always obedient? What if you can't get pregnant? What if you can't have children? What if you're laid off from your job? Does the deepest desire revolve around money and what it can do for you? That dream house that it can buy you? To be free from debt? Is it recognition at work? The list goes on and on. What is your deepest desire? If it could be yours, would you turn your back on Jesus? How about expectations? Do you have subtle expectations for Jesus? Things you expect him to do since you follow him? What things are you expecting Jesus to protect you from in this life? What should you not have to experience because you follow him? I know expectations I've had to wrestle through and still wrestle through. What if something happened to Laura? What if something happened to my kids? In the midst of that, could I say in those moments that the Lord is my rock, that he is still good, that my expectations in him were still met? Could I say that? I don't know. What expectations have you placed on Christ? What are you expecting from him? Because misguided expectations and misguided desires that triumph over our love for Jesus will only lead us to disillusionment and even possibly betrayal. We have to guard against the the good desires, even the good expectations in and of themselves that take the throne in our hearts. For whatever is on the throne of your heart, from there these desires and these expectations will come. So we, unlike Judas, have to get our hearts and our minds around who Jesus is. That we have to get our hearts and our minds right about who Jesus is and why he has come. Or we too could become disillusioned like him. But in the midst of this betrayal, in the midst of this heartache, there are three glorious truths that we need to see about Jesus. Three truths that shine bright in the midst of this dark time when Judas comes to betray his king. And the first is this. Jesus is in control. Jesus is completely in control of everything that is occurring. He's not caught by surprise at this betrayal, for in chapter 13, as I said, he was expecting it. He predicted it. He even foretold it. No, he is in control of all the events here. But maybe to the unbelieving eye, maybe to the doubting eye, even to our eyes at times, He doesn't seem to be in control. He doesn't seem to be in control here in this betrayal. Everything seems to be falling apart. One late scholar, when writing about this passage, the betrayal, H.G. Wells, he wrote the following, The world is like a great stage production produced and managed by God. As the curtain rises, the set is perfect, a treat to every eye. The characters are resplendent. Everything goes well until the leading man steps on the hem of the leading lady's gown causing her to trip over a chair, which knocks over a lamp, which pushes a table into a wall, which in turn knocks over the scenery, which brings everything down on the heads of the actors. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, Wells writes, God is running around, shouting orders, pulling strings, trying desperately to restore order from chaos, but alas, he is unable to do so. Wells finishes, poor God, poor God. Are we to pity God here in the midst of this betrayal? 
Are we to pity Jesus? Because according to Wells, there is a limited God in the arrest and the crucifixion. There's a God who's reacting to human wills and wishes and desires rather than accomplishing his own will. Poor God. This is not the God we see in this text. This is not what's happening with Jesus. He's not dismayed. He's not reacting. He is in complete control. He understands the plan of God the Father and is executing it to its final fulfillment. Even verse 4 tells us that he knew everything that was about to happen to him. So John is purposeful in the way he writes his gospel. He's purposeful in presenting Jesus as completely in control. He is sovereign over all. Sovereign over all of it. Judas' betrayal, those who accompanied Judas to arrest him, all of it our Lord knew. And yet, he still allowed it. Yet, he still went humbly to the cross. Some of you have been hurt deeply by betrayal. Maybe by a spouse, a loved one, a friend, a family member. Some of you might feel the sting of what Judas did to Jesus just a little bit more than the rest of us. But imagine if you knew it was coming. Imagine if you knew it was coming, the exact moment it would happen, even the exact moment when the heart has succumbed to the desire. Could you still love that person? Could you still love them as Jesus did? Could you treat them with kindness or even compassion? I'm not sure I could. Jesus' control over all things, his sovereignty over all things, it gives us immense hope in the midst of trials, in the midst of sufferings, even in the midst of betrayals, because he's in control when our world feels like it's falling apart. Jesus is in control. And the Lord continues to love even those who would betray him. So he's in complete control here. But secondly, he's also truly God. Jesus is truly God. Now before your mind says, duh, Pastor Ryan, you guys keep repeating this throughout the Gospel of John. You keep telling us this. Guard your heart against that. Because the fact that Jesus is truly God, it affects every single part of our Christian faith. That is truly awesome that Jesus is truly God. But what I want you to see is the subtleties within the text. Look what happens here. Verse 4 on, then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, He went out and said to them, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered, I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Verse 7, then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said, I told you I am he. Notice what happens in the text here. Jesus is asking these men who are coming to arrest him, who is it that you're seeking? And they say, Jesus, and he says, I am he. But actually, in the Greek, all it says is, I am. You know, John loves this statement, I am. Three times it's stated, twice by Jesus, once in a recap by, God, by John. This is God incarnate, the God-man, Jesus, who is truly human and truly God, standing before these men, not hiding, not shrinking back, not in fear, in complete control, but standing before them as he did in John chapter 8 when he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they ask, who is it that you're seeking? He asks them that. They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. I am. 
I am three times. He's the man they're looking for. He's the man that they want, yet their eyes can't truly understand that it is God incarnate standing right in front of them. And notice, this is a funny part in the text, notice what happens to the men who come in the middle of the night with no witnesses. This whole trial is a farce. There's no witnesses. They come to arrest him in the middle of the night, and they ask where Jesus is, and he says, I am, and they fall down. They fall back on one another. Are they surprised here? I'm sure of it. It's the middle of the night. But I love what else we see. Without even realizing it, they fall down, which is a biblical symbol of worship when confronted with the divine name of I am. They fall down when he says it. They fall down. They bow the knee just as one day everyone, whether in submission or rebellion to God, will bow the knee in that final day. This is the divine son of God who's giving himself up voluntarily. Nothing else. So Jesus' deity is still on full display even through his betrayal. But thirdly, we see that Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. Verse eight, I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said. I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant most likely had a helmet. It could have slid off and sliced the ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus here, still filled with compassion still filled with love, still desiring to watch over those disciples who are his. He tells the men, you're only seeking one man. I've asked you three times who you're seeking. You keep telling me Jesus of Nazareth. You're seeking one man. Let these other ones go. He cares for his. He cares for his. He let the other disciples go. It's me you want. But Peter, that could be a sermon in and of itself, but Peter, who we're gonna get to in a minute, he's zealous He cares for the Lord. He wants to protect Jesus. There was most likely some jostling. You can imagine the fear that they're experiencing in the middle of the night as this Roman cohort comes to arrest Jesus. It's hard to see. There's probably some jostling, some shoving. The disciples are slowly getting surrounded and nerves are frayed for Peter. So he pulls out a blade and he takes a swipe at the servant, cutting his ear off. So Peter's misunderstanding of Jesus was clear here. He still doesn't understand what type of king Jesus is. Still doesn't understand that he has come to conquer the power and penalty of sin. Still doesn't get it. A sword can't do that. A sword can't conquer death. It can't conquer sin. No amount of anything else in our lives, be it swords or money or good deeds, can change the fact that we have all sinned. And the scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death. Something has to be done. Peter doesn't get it. So you might be here this morning and consider yourself a good person. Consider yourself to maybe mess up here and there, but overall you're better than others. You're not as bad as some. Allow me to tell you where you misunderstand sin. You misunderstand the severity of sin. You misunderstand that those things that you deem to be not that serious are that serious before an infinite and holy God. You've broken his law. You've broken his law. You have sinned against your creator and therefore you need a sacrifice. You need a sacrifice. 
But Peter doesn't get it. He does not understand. He doesn't want Jesus to be the sacrifice. He doesn't want Jesus to be arrested. And he doesn't want Jesus to die, but he has to. Jesus has to die or we are still lost in our sins. He has to be our sacrifice. So he tells Jesus, put away your sword. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Without realizing it, Peter was working against Jesus in the moment. Jesus had to go to the cross. He alone could drink the cup. And what is this cup he's talking about? This cup is a biblical metaphor for the very wrath of God that will be poured out. The prophets are filled with it as we read them. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, all point to this metaphorical language of God's wrath being poured out in a cup. So in Jeremiah 25, for instance, we read, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations to whom I'm sending you drink from it. This wrath is poured out because of the sins of God's people. This cup imagery is what we're understanding. It's what Jesus is talking about. He has a mission. He has come to fulfill something. He has to take the cup that the Father has prepared for him because he has come to save a people. He has come to save us. But also in the Old Testament, this cup language can speak of salvation, even blessing. So Psalm 116, for instance, how can I repay the Lord for all the good he has done for me? I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. In other words, make sure you understand this. In other words, Jesus took the divine cup of wrath, the very wrath that should have been poured out on us, and stood in our place as our sacrifice so that we could drink of the cup of salvation. He took the cup of wrath so that you could drink the cup of salvation. It's an amazing exchange that only Jesus can accomplish. And he did it. He did it for you. He did it for you. Jesus is our sacrifice. Even in the midst of this betrayal, he's in control and he is our sacrifice. But secondly, this morning, we need to look at the denial. The denial in John chapter 18, real quick. Starting in verse 12. Then the company of soldiers, the commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and tied him up. First, they led him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be better for one man to die for the people. Scene changed to Peter. Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves and Peter was standing with them warming himself back inside to Jesus. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus answered him. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews congregate, and I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officials standing by slapped Jesus, saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? If I've spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly... 
Why do you hit me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, back outside once more. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Peter denied it again. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Now, the way in which John is writing here can be a little confusing, so you probably heard me saying inside, outside, but I want to explain it real quick. Think of a movie with two scenes happening at the same time. Inside the building, we're seeing how Annas is questioning Jesus, and Jesus is answering all of the questions truthfully. He's not denying anything. But then outside the building, there's a courtyard, right outside of it in a courtyard, and here is where the denial of Peter is taking place. So John is giving us this back and forth, this inside and out. He wants you to see them in order that they might be compared. He wants these two things compared in order that we might see how Jesus faces questions of his identity with truthfulness and boldness. Yet Peter, sadly, lies and even denies Christ. So what I hope we see real quick from this denial is that even just like in our sin, we are prone to betraying our Lord, so also can we be prone to denying him. We have to understand that this this comparison that John is setting up for us, a comparison of how we, you and I, are in our sin versus how Jesus is in his righteousness. So the first truth we see is this, man is selfish, but Jesus loves and protects. Man is selfish, but Jesus loves and protects. When you read this story, do you ever ask yourself, what happened to Peter? Peter the zealot who chops off a man's ear moments before is now Peter the coward who lies when questioned by a young girl. What changed? Loss of hope, I'm sure. Expectations and desires like we looked at with Judas, I'm sure those weren't met as well. But Peter here denies the Lord because he was fearful, yes, because he was afraid for sure, but ultimately because he was selfish. He could only think of himself in the moment. So when a young servant girl questions him, and when others stand around the fire and question him, he denies being a follower of Jesus, denies being his disciple, denies the Lord because he is fearful instead of faithful. What if they know he's with Jesus? Would he be arrested too? I'm sure the scenarios are running through his head. But then we read in verse 19, as it transitions inside to Jesus, verse 19 tells us they were questioning him about his disciples and about his teaching. I'm sure everything was on the table. How many followers do you have, Jesus? Who are they? How strong are they? In essence, what charge can we bring against you? I've spoken openly to the world, he tells them. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temples where all the Jews come together. You can question anyone who heard me. He doesn't give up his disciples. He doesn't betray them. He doesn't deny them. He only speaks truth. He loves and protects those who have followed him, even if they're denying him right outside in the courtyard. Secondly, man hides from the truth, but Jesus embodies the truth. Man hides from the truth, but Jesus embodies the truth. Peter here is questioned three times, and he lies three times. Remember his bravado that was recorded for us in Mark chapter 14? Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, I will not. We've all been there. 
Jesus replied, truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter replied, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And here he is denying Jesus, hiding from the truth, lying about his identity to save himself. Meanwhile, in our comparison, Jesus is inside embodying the truth. After an official slaps him for his manner of speech, Jesus replies, if I've spoken wrongly, if I lied to you, if I'm not speaking the truth, then why do you hit me? Give evidence for it. Why do you hit me? The truth is what Jesus embodies here. The truth. He is struck while his hands are bound. The official hits him because he most likely fear, feels that it will make his superiors happy. But the truth of it in the midst of all of this is they can't see truth right in front of their eyes. They can't see God's incarnate truth right in front of their eyes. Jesus here is standing up to his questioners and denying nothing. Meanwhile, Peter is outside cowering before his questioners and denying everything. But thirdly, lastly, man is helpless, but Jesus is our Savior. Man is helpless, but Jesus is our Savior. When you read the Bible, the entire refrain found throughout the Bible is this. We are helpless to save ourselves. We need someone to save us. In our, Western, in our Western hemisphere, our individualistic minds, we don't like that. Something within us just recoils at that a little bit. I can take care of myself. I can pull myself up. I can make it. I don't need anyone's help. But our loving and gracious God would tell you that you do. You do need help. You cannot make it on your own. And this is the storyline of Scripture, from the betrayal in the garden to the repeated failings of kings and leaders throughout the Old Testament to the repeated refrain of the prophets. One message rings out loud and clear. We need a Savior. We need someone to save us, to redeem us, to rescue us. Someone to stand in our place before a holy God. So only God can take care of this problem. Only God can provide the redemption and only God can save us and praise him, he does. He sends his son Jesus to redeem and rescue you out of his love for you. John three sixteen, you know it. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He loved you in that way. He sent his son to die for you. He sent your savior Romans 5, 8, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, still sinning, still betraying, still denying, Christ died for us. That's the love of a heavenly father for you. So some of you might be here this morning and you aren't a Christian. Maybe you think of yourself as in this middle ground. You're not really sure. You enjoy going to church here and there. You enjoy being around nice people, but you have yet to fully commit to Jesus. I want to tell you that the Bible makes it very clear that there is no middle ground. Romans 1 makes it clear that even in the general knowledge of creation, there is enough evidence for God that you are deemed guilty for not worshiping him. What we looked at in the betrayal of Judas is still true for you. You have betrayed the living God. You are living your life in rebellion to him. Whether you recognize it or not, you think in and of yourself you are good enough. You think you are good enough. 
But hear my plea, and what the most loving thing for me to tell you this morning is that you are not. You're not good enough. You need a Savior. You need someone to stand in your place. Your self-righteousness before God Almighty is nowhere near good enough. You need a Redeemer. You need a Savior. You need Jesus Christ. So when you believe in him, when you place your faith in him, we talk a lot about faith, when you trust that his sacrifice is good enough for you, when you trust in that, then your sins are washed away. His righteousness is given to you, and you can stand as a child of God, redeemed and saved. That's the good news of the gospel. So would you believe this morning? Would you believe that Jesus is enough? Would you stop trying in and of yourself? Stop living in this middle ground. Believe that Jesus died for you and that his sacrifice is more than enough. Would you trust in that? He beckons us. He beckons you to follow him. So would you? But for the Christian here, the believer here, those of us who profess Christ as Lord and are seeking to follow after him, maybe, just maybe, you resonate with Peter here. Sure, you haven't denied being a Christian to a family member or to a coworker, but maybe you're experiencing some failures in your walk, some failures in your walk, some area of sin that is still clinging to you, some area of sin that you still feel overcome by, you still feel like you cannot conquer. There are many factors one can look at in what made Peter deny Jesus that night, many factors. But I want to encourage you in the midst of your own temptations is to be reminded at what happened to Peter in the end. He was restored. Although he was marked by his denial, he was not defined by it. Although he failed, his faith remained. He repented and he was restored. When Jesus died for you, some of you might need to hear this. When Jesus died for you, he knew who he was dying for. He knew of your sins, past, present, and future. He died for failures. He paid the penalty for all of our sins, even when we stumble today. So in the midst of those times when you are feeling overcome, when you feel like you have failed, what is the biblical response? Repent. Turn to Jesus. Know that his grace is sufficient for you. Martin Luther, the great reformer who went to task with the abuses of the Catholic Church, penned his 95 theses, and he posted them to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. But the very first one of his theses was this, the very first one of the 95. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers would be one of repentance. Don't let your failures, Christian, don't let your stumbles, your mistakes deter your faith. The one, look to the one who died for you. Look to Jesus, the one who has redeemed you. When we fail, he is faithful. When we deny, he delivers. And when we repent, he restores. May the failure in each of us take heart in that this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the revelation of your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you that you did not leave us in and of ourselves, but that you sent him to die for us. I thank you that in the midst of this betrayal, we can see how Jesus is in complete control, that Jesus is truly God incarnate, and that Jesus is our sacrifice. I thank you that as we look at this denial of Peter, that he was marked by it, but he was not defined by it. I thank you that when we fail, we can look to the one who is faithful. 
I thank you that when we repent, Father, that you restore. So I pray that in the midst of, the, in the midst of our body here, that for those who are feeling like they're failing, they're feeling overcome by sin, certain areas in their life are not in a line with what you have said, pray that they would look to you. Pray that they would know that their grace is sufficient, that your grace is sufficient for them, and they would look to you in the midst of that. Thank you, Father, for saving us. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to rescue us. May we rejoice in that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.